Is it okay if I put my hand on your shot? Okay. I did wash my hands. Father, thank you for Justin, for Amanda, for their four boys. Thank you for the calling that you've placed on their life, the passion you've given them uh, for England, for London, uh, for the British people. We pray, oh God, that you would provide everything that they need uh, for that calling. And we pray now, Lord, as Justin comes to preach your word, that you would open his lips and his mouths would declare your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor John. Good morning. As, uh, as he mentioned, we're at Ambassador Bible Church. I was thinking about this this morning as I greet our, our church each and every week. Uh, I say, good morning, ambassadors, because we're Ambassador Bible Church. And I was thinking of how to address all of you this morning, and I thought cornerstoners didn't sound very good, so we'll, we'll just stick with brothers and sisters in Christ. But it's, it's, it's wonderful to be with you. I'm delighted to be worshiping with you, and we're so grateful for the welcoming spirit that we've already enjoyed, and uh, our family is very thankful to be here. Uh, it's an honor to be invited to open scriptures with you this morning, and uh, not only because we're EFCA brothers and sisters, but uh, I'm excited to be in the pulpit that's been filled with good men for a long time. I've been, as Pastor John mentioned, we've gotten to know each other over the recent uh, time that he, since he's come to Northern Virginia, and it's been an absolute joy to get to know him and to uh, just talk about the scriptures, talk about church, and uh, all the things that we get to enjoy during the week as pastors. Um, but I am also very humbled to stand where Pastor Bill Kynes stood for, th for three decades, and uh, I'm thankful that I got to know Pastor Bill over the last uh, seven to eight years. He has been um, a, a spiritual uncle, a, a pastoral uncle, a mentor in many ways. Uh, his relationship with our senior pastor, John Park, has been a strong one for a long time, and I was able to sort of be in that circle with Pastor Bill. And I was also uh, very blessed to get to know Pastor Tim Cho over the last number of years, and he's a very good friend, and we're excited about what the Lord's doing in and through his family in Kansas, of all places, I'll tell you. But each of those men, Pastor Bill and Pastor Tim, have had a direct impact on me as a pastor and a follower of Christ, and I'm grateful for them. I know you're grateful for them as well, but it speaks to uh, the feeling that I have and the ble how blessed I feel to be able to stand where they've served for so long. This morning we are in Acts chapter 16. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles. We read this morning already. You can open your Bibles or your Bible apps our title this morning is The Global Gospel, and yes, I'm the missions guy, and I'm going to talk about missions. I hope that's okay with you this morning. But we're going to parachute in into the story of the early church in the book of Acts, seeing God's faithfulness in action and His plan to share His story with the world beginning to unfold. The author, Luke, is continuing the narrative that he began in his gospel about the Lord Jesus, and now he's describing for us the process of Christ's mission being taken forth by His Spirit. You know what I, how I, I didn't say His church or His disciples, it was by His Spirit, because it is only by and through the power of the Holy Spirit that God moves and, and works. Now, He does it through His people, yes, 
but it is the Spirit-filled people. It is the work of the Holy Spirit, empowering the apostles here in the book of Acts and us today. This morning, we're going to look, as we parachute into the book of Acts, the second, at the second missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas have just split up. And no, as much as maybe many of you have heard the story or if you've read through the book of Acts and you realize that Paul and Barnabas splitting up, it sounds like a bad thing, but in reality, it probably was the best thing that could have happened. Does anyone have a person in their life that they might call a Barnabas? where you both love the Lord or you both, uh, you do so well, but when you get together, it gets a little bit explosive. I think we all have people in our lives. I have a dear friend of mine who, uh, I'll call him Paul and I'll be Barnabas, and uh, uh, he is a missionary in Southeast Asia, and it's the perfect place for him and me on opposite ends of the world. I cannot tell you, Jason loves the Lord more than almost any person I've ever met. But when Jason and I get in a room, things just combust, and we get explosive, and we talk, and we argue, and at the end, we give each other a big hug. But I love that he's in Asia, and we're going to Europe, because I just get to pray for him, and pray for him, and pray for him, and he gets to do great things for the glory of God, and I don't have to be in the same room. But Paul and Barnabas have just split up here in the book of Acts, and what's really great is that Paul's ministry is able to be just as effective and is yet able to be doubled as Barnabas splits with him. Because if we read in the book of Acts, we see that Barnabas is commended as someone with incredible skill, incredible fervor, incredible ability. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila took him aside and taught him uh, a few things that he wasn't aware of, and he came with a humble spirit and he listened. And when he was sent to Jerusalem, he actually brought the ministry to the apostles in Jerusalem. So Barnabas was not a man lacking in ability or strength or fervor. So their splitting up actually ends up being a net positive for the church in spite of their confrontation with one another. And so who does Paul join with? He joins Silas. Barnabas and Mark, John Mark, who was the purpose, who was the reason for their uh, confrontation, they've gone to Cyprus, and Paul and Silas are going to move into Asia, as it says. Today, we would know that as modern-day Turkey. Let's go, and we'll start in verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. If you were to look on the map at this point in the narrative, you could see where Paul and Silas begin to move further in to the peninsula, the, the Asia Minor continent almost of Turkey. Today, Turkey exists as the quintessential bridge culture between Europe and the Middle East. This was the same in the ancient world. Many Jews had settled in the cities, mostly in southern Turkey, mostly right on the edge of the Mediterranean Sea, as they were driven away from their homelands, as they were driven out of Israel in the diaspora, the dispersion, in the centuries before Jesus, they settled in these communities. And if they had enough people in that community, they would establish a synagogue or a house of prayer. And we'll see later in Philippi, there's not even enough Jews in Philippi for um, a, a, a stall of a, a synagogue. They only had a stall of prayer. But 
uh, here in all these different communities. So what Paul and Silas are going to do is they're going to be very pointed, and they're going to go to the synagogues in these towns. They're going to teach them about Jesus, opening up the scriptures that, they, that these people know. And what they're able to do is say, it was always Jesus. It was always him. Let's show you how and why it was always him. And we'll tell you all the things that Jesus did, all the things that Jesus said, all that he fulfilled. And that's their plan. And it was a great plan. It was an excellent plan. It was a gospel plan. But here in verse 1, we see that they meet a young man named Timothy. He himself, Timothy, was a picture of that bridge culture. He was the quintessential person bridge between Europe and the Middle East. Because why? His father was a Greek. He was non-Jewish. We don't know if he was actually from Greece or Macedonia, right? Greek was a, a, a term as an all-encompassing of the time for anyone who wasn't Jewish, what today we would call a Gentile. But he's, his father was a Greek, or he spoke Greek, and his mother was a Jewish woman who was a believer. But he was that bridge. His ethnic heritage had one foot in the old covenant of being a Jew through his mother, and he had another foot in the Hellenistic world of his day which the book of Acts, this is the moment where the shift of the gospel focus goes from the Jewish world to the Hellenistic world, to the world outside of the Old Covenant. This is the moment. So we see the bridge of the land, we see the bridge of the person, and then we're going to see the bridge of the mission take place through Paul and Silas and where God's Spirit directs them. Being a bridge is a big theme in Scripture. Moses became the bridge between God and his people in Egypt, on Sinai, in the wilderness. Samuel, the prophet, was the bridge between the judges and the kings, as he was the one who, uh, who brought Saul and coronated him. Jesus was and is the bridge between God and man, fully God, fully man, taking upon himself the ability to bridge the divide. He was the bridge between the Old Covenant and the New. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, but also the one who gave the Great Commission to go to all the world, teaching them, all the nations. So Jesus is the bridge, not just between God and man, between the Old Covenant and New. So let's continue to hold on to that thought as we read through this chapter of Acts chapter 16. See how God is bringing in this moment so many things together. Now, he brought everything together. He, he, he redeemed all things unto himself at the cross and in the resurrection, yes. But in God's storytelling, this is a moment of building bridges. I'd like to commend you to take some time today or this week to take a closer look at where these places are. If you have a paper Bible with you, oftentimes they have a map. Uh, I used to, as a kid, I would love ignoring the sermon and just looking at all the maps. Uh, that was me. Oh, I'm already seeing a couple people being like, yeah, that was you. But I, I can remember as a child pouring over the maps in the back of my Bible. And what was, what was so exciting is that when uh, someone would be speaking and they would talk about a place, and then you would go to the back and you'd look for the place and you'd find it, oh, that's where they were. We hear so much about cities and places in the Bibles, but maps can really help us gain a perspective. 
They help us really get a sense. It's, it's like whenever anyone goes to Israel and they come back and they say, I can't believe I was just on the streets where Jesus walked. I can't believe I saw where David was. I can, you know, the stories come to life. Maps can do that for us as well. So even though many of us use our digital Bibles today, these maps are just a quick Google image search away. So simply type in Paul's second missionary journey and you'll be able to find so many things. I would encourage you to take some time this afternoon. Maybe not right now. Don't Google right now, okay? Let's get through the, let's get through the text first and then maybe we can Google at the end. But I would encourage you to do that today. Let's go back to the text. We've taken a look at who Timothy is. He's mentioned here in verse 1. Let's go back into verse 2 as we expound on Timothy. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. These are two towns kind of not too far from one another, sort of a Chantilly and Annandale vibe, as our church is in Chantilly. He was, spoken well, he was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Verse 3, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. Here we see, once again, Paul being strategic and intentional with his mission work. What was his strategy for his mission? It was to go to the places throughout Asia Minor, throughout modern-day Turkey, find the synagogue, begin to teach there, and then have an impact on the neighborhood, on the city, through that venue. He does so with Timothy as well. He's strategic. He notices a young man with gifting, but not just gifting, but with support. He was well spoken of. This is a young man of character, someone worth investing in. I love that in verse 2 that Timothy's number one qualification before his ethnicity, because remember, his ethnicity is important to his bridge ability with cultures, with the Jews as well as the Greeks. His first qualification was that he was well spoken of by the brothers. May this be the qualification placed on us in our jobs, in our schools, in our family gatherings. May we be well spoken of on our street. May we be well spoken of at the bank we go to. May we be well... There is something different about that person. They always give glory to God in everything that they do. They don't make it about themselves. That's how we become well spoken of. But verse 2, he was well spoken of. Not only did the folks in his own church and town know who he was, because remember, they went to Derby and Lystra in verse 1, and they met Timothy. And then Timothy was not just known well of in Lystra, it was Lystra and Iconium. His gospel impact, his love for the Lord, his skill, his ability, his passion for the Lord had bridged the geography of the area. It had, it had gone out of Lystra and into Iconium, his impact, but not just his impact. It was the Spirit of God working in and through him. When we think of who God has called us to be as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, ought we not to desire to be like Timothy? We know Timothy was young, 
Not all of us are young in the room. I don't feel it anymore. I, I may look it to some of you. I may look old to others, but I don't feel young anymore. I feel ancient. I was only born in 1989. And I know, I know. Wow, he's old. We know Timothy was young. We know Timothy was multi-ethnic. He came from a multi-ethnic background. We know that he lived in a transient area. Do these things start to make sound very familiar to us? We live in a multi-ethnic area. We live in a very transient area. There are tons of young professionals moving to this area. Who are the Timothys that we could identify in our lives and in our churches? Who is worth the investment? Who, who can we see and, and call out, hey, God's doing something in and through your life. It doesn't have to be vocational, but it can be, in, it can be volunteer. It doesn't matter. God has a great plan for so many of us. May we have the character of Timothy, but we, may we also identify the Timothys in our lives. He was young because in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, the apostle Paul wrote to him to not let anyone look down on him for being young, as he was a pastor in Cyprus. He had the obligation and opportunity to be an example in all areas of life. As Paul wrote that to Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 4, he was doing it as not a reprimand, but a a re-upping of his encouragement. He was re-encouraging Timothy, hey, don't forget that your youth is not against you. It's an asset because your character covers it. Your character uh, can do so much greater and better for you than your age. Let's go back to verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. He, he uh, uh, identified and invested. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Here is just one more example that if we want to make a difference in the lives of others, if we want to honor God with our lives, our first point in the bulletin this, this morning is this, that we must count the cost of following and obeying God. You and I, as followers of Jesus, and if you don't know Jesus, may today be the day that you begin to follow him. But, we must count the cost of following and obeying God. Why, after verse 3, did we have this first observation? This had to be a pretty interesting conversation between Paul and Timothy. As Paul and Timothy get to know one another better, they're building a relationship, they're, uh, they're getting to know each other well. Paul approaches Timothy. Hey, Timothy, says Paul. Yes, teacher. He would usually say something respectful. You want to come along with us on this mission, right? As Paul saying, that's right, Paul, I do. And you believe that God's calling you to this ministry, right? Because Silas and I can absolutely see that God is doing something through you. Well, sure, Paul. Thank you for seeing that. Thank you for saying that. This is Timothy. What are you trying to say? Well, if you're really committed to this, because of our strategy, we, there's something we, we think you need to do. Anything. I'll do anything, Paul. What is it? And Paul says, well, we know your dad's a Greek, but your mom's a Jew. So you're mostly Jewish in other Jews' eyes, but 
there's one area we don't want to be a hindrance. And at this point, Timothy must be getting big eyes. He knows what's coming. You want me to get circumcised, don't you? Because he's a young man, but he's not, he's not eight days old. And Paul just gives him that look that says yes without even opening his mouth. Yeah, that's what we're wanting you to do. This is at least how I like to imagine that conversation would have gone. We won't know until we get to heaven, I guess, but I plan to ask Timothy how that went. (laughs) You see, Timothy in this moment had to count the cost. It was painful. It hurt. It literally hurt to strategically and intentionally obey the Lord's call on his life. Because the authorities that God had placed in his life, the people that God had put in his way to say, they are your mentors, they are your leaders, these are the people that God is going to use to grow you and to lead you in obedience to my call. He had to obey that to obey the Lord. These were the people God had given him. So it begs the question for us in our first application, our first uh, point of question in the the bulletin is this, what is the cost of obedience in your life? This is a paramount question in the life of a believer. This we must wrestle with God as Jacob did. We must not let go of continually searching and seeking the Lord and asking the Spirit, God, what does obedience look like for me? When we say, what is God's will? God's will is obedience. Do as God's word commands and the rest will find its way. But what does that cost look like? We must seek wisdom in the scriptures and the godly people in our lives and listen to the people that God's placed in them, just as Timothy listened to Paul and Silas. Timothy, Silas, and Paul embarked on a journey that led them to places they didn't expect to go and into circumstances they didn't expect to find. I'm sure when Timothy woke up that day, he, was not, he did not think he would be asked to go through such a painful process just to share the gospel. Well, Paul, can't I tell people about Jesus without going through this? Sure you can. But what's better? What's going to be more effective? What's going to be the greater way to get into people's hearts and in their ears so that they will listen and listen well? But doesn't life do that for us? Doesn't doesn't our life uh, end up in in places that we don't expect to be? Whenever people ask my wife and I how we met and so on and so forth, we always end up telling them about how my wife never wanted to marry a pastor. She, she would, I mean, that was, she was adamant. And I tricked her because my, my undergraduate major was social sciences. I didn't, I didn't do the, the pastoral studies until seminary. So I, I had already, I already had her by that point. So then she married the pastor without realizing it. This is not where God, uh, this is not where we thought God was going to take us. I didn't expect to be moving across the world. What's the cost of obedience, though? Is it more more, uh, glorifying to God in my life that I'm able to stay comfortable in my culture, or is it better that I obey? 
I'd, I would rather obey. So few of us have our plans work out. You know, we probably all had a picture of how life would go when we were 10 or 15 or 20. You ever talk to a college student? I mean, there's perfection for the rest of their life. When I graduate, oh, it's going to be easy. I was that way too. But so few of us have plans work out the way that we would have made them to be. You may look back and you may see how things have worked out, but I'm sure it looks different than when you were having those visions. Let's look a little bit further in. Let's, let's go a little bit further in the text of verse 6. Remember, keep that in mind of things aren't going to turn out the way that they think they will. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. They tried. They wanted to. They were seeking, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, which we know of today as the city of Troy. If you were to look on the map, again, use those maps today, okay? If you were to look on the map at the route that they took through Asia, which is Turkey, is to get to Troy, it is the completely wrong way to go through the country. If you're trying to start here and you're trying to end up here, the last thing you should do is go up here and then come back down. The first thing you should do is just maybe hop on a boat and go around on the sea. Bithynia was on the northern coast. It's on the, actually on the, black, the edge of the Black Sea. So Turkey on the northern part is the Black Sea and on the southern part is the Mediterranean Sea. So they, were, they wanted to go to Bithynia, deep into Turkey, deep into Asia Minor. And every time they tried to go, the Holy Spirit told them not to. This area would be seen as going deep into Asia. It's debatable how the Holy Spirit kept them away. We could assume it came through a vision, a dream, or maybe even a person that God had placed in their life. We see that because of what comes next, verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, Immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Macedonia is the modern bridge is the bridge, excuse me, to Europe. It's modern day Greece. That area right now is uh, Greece, North Macedonia, uh, Bulgaria, and some other areas, but that whole area was called Macedonia at the time. The cultural epicenter of the Hellenistic world that existed. Now, Rome was the imperial, military, and political capital at the time. They were in charge. It was the Roman Empire. But the cultural capital was still the Greeks. Everyone spoke and wrote in Greek. Latin wouldn't become the dominant language of the day for another 200 years. But this was truly, so everyone spoke Greek and Macedonia had a huge influence, if not power. But this was truly Gentile territory. You see, Paul and Silas and Timothy were comfortable in Asia because of all the Jewish communities that had been established in the dispersion over the last couple of centuries. So they, were, they could jump from synagogue to synagogue to synagogue. <clears throat> they were experiencing that more <clears throat> ancient Near East, that ancient Middle East culture 
that they were used to and living in a place that had so many Jews. The call to Macedonia from God to these men was not an easy one. You see, they had already counted the cost of their journey, their lives, and their ministries, but this was a completely new assessment of cost. This was different. This wasn't, I'm willing to give my life and I'm comfortable in who I'm reaching. No, 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 no. This is, I'm willing to give my life and I've got no clue how to talk with some of these people. God used these men to build gospel bridges between where the church began to where the church would continue to grow. There were, at this point, no recorded pockets of Christians throughout the Roman Empire in Europe. But the growth of the church in Europe can be attested to many ways to this call. This right here. So our second point of observation is this. Their obedience, and by their, I mean Paul, Silas, and Timothy, their obedience led to the conversion of billions of people over thousands of years. Now, God would have accomplished his goals in any way he desired. If Paul and Silas and Timothy had rejected the Lord and decided not to go, God still would have saved. But their obedience led to their participation in the conversion of billions of people over thousands of years, of which I am a part of that heritage. It is because of the heritage, that the holy heritage that began here and the call to Macedonia that I have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise God for Paul. Praise God for his obedience. Praise God for what he's done because I have heard because of it. So often we think in short terms about our heritage. Our church, ABC, is only about 25-ish years old. We met in the basement at Cornerstone, early days. Our church is a member church in the EFCA, of course. And the denomination only began in 1950. It has roots in Swedish, Danish, and Norwegian immigrant communities from the 1870s and 80s. The church I grew up in was a Baptist church, but it was built by the Swedish Evangelical Free Church in the 1890s. And it still had Swedish hymnals in the, uh, in the attic when I was a kid. I would read, read through those. So our history is a short one. Our heritage, denominationally. But if we trace back the Christian witness, we can see how the gospel impact in Europe specifically through the mission of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and others is a direct ancestor to the Christian faith of which we are a part today, the expression, the Protestant Reformation eventually, and to where we are today. Of course, that history is complicated and is riddled with sin and mistakes because people are people and God is God, and one day we will be sanctified and glorified, and we won't make those mistakes anymore. But we can directly attribute, in many ways, our faith to their faithfulness and obedience. There is even one man who we can further look back to in our heritage. In Acts chapter 9, Ananias obeyed God by bringing in Paul to his house, even though Ananias at first rebuffed and did not want to help Paul. But because Ananias obeyed, Paul came into his house and Paul's, Paul was healed. He was baptized and Paul became Paul. And because of that, the New Testament was written. Because of that, Paul became a missionary. Because of that, the continent of Europe heard the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ for the first time here 
in Acts 16. These choices led to a holy heritage that we so enjoy today. We are the spiritual descendants of the global movement of the Christian faith. And I doubt that Ananias saw that happening when he just welcomed Paul into his house. I doubt that was the impact that he could foresee because only God could see that. And that leads us to our second point of observation and application is this. It's our obedience doesn't have to feel great to be great. Do you notice that? It's obedience because we're not great. We're not great. It is God who is great. It is God's plan, it is God's work, it is God's word, it is God's spirit that is great. Our obedience is merely our participation in his greatness. Not everyone is called to be global missionaries like Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Some of us are. God has placed a call on my family's life to global missions, something we never expected. We're preparing within the next number of months, I don't know the number, to move our family to London. We've counted the cost, and London's expensive, so it's costly. But the cost is outweighed by the benefit of obedience. Cost-benefit analysis, anybody do that in their jobs? What's the gospel-benefit analysis of obedience? It's eternal, infinite, it's forever in Christ. Because we aren't going over there to change everyone, we're merely attempting to restart a holy heritage in one person, in one family, in one church, in one neighborhood that will stretch into the centuries ahead and maybe billions more because of obedience. We don't know. So where does that moment take place? Between verses 10 and 14, They get to Troy and they decide, all right, we're going to obey. We're going to go across to Macedonia. And the first place that they go is Samothrace and then to to Philippi. Uh, And they meet a woman, verse 14. One one who heard us was, was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart. No, Paul didn't open her heart. Silas didn't open her heart. Timothy didn't open her heart. It was the Lord. The God had created a moment. He had created a time and a place for them to meet so that his good news would come into her life. And she would pay attention to what was said. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. This is the first ever recorded convert to the, to the gospel, to the faith in Europe. She's the first one. There's actually a place you can still go to in that area in northeast Greece. Uh, There's there's like a pool and uh, there's a few different things where where she was baptized. It's it's a lovely thing. I would would encourage you to look that up. But That's where the heritage began for so many of us. It was because they had obeyed. It was because they were there and were faithful that God opened her heart. She was ready, and God did a great work. Our third observation is that their obedience saw them into circumstances from which only God could deliver and work. You see, 
she was a worshiper of God. She had uh, attached herself to the scriptures, to the, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. She knew who God was, and then she heard who Jesus was, and her life completely changed. So God had already been preparing her. And this was not their strategy when they set off on their mission journey. This was not their plan. They had never thought of a woman named Lydia in Macedonia when they began their journey. But their obedience led them to that place. It saw them into circumstances from which only God could deliver and work. If they had on their own power taken a boat to Philippi and just happened upon a woman selling purple, they would not have succeeded because it would have been under their own power. It was their obedience that put them in a place to succeed. Obedience does not guarantee, though, our worldly version of success. It does further place us in the mindset of trusting the Lord for all things. We read this earlier, but we'll close with the text of the Philippian jailer in verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved, you and your household. I read that in the context of the point we just observed before. Their obedience saw them into circumstances from which only God could deliver and work. You see, they had, as was mentioned earlier, they had healed a young girl who was being exploited for money. She was possessed with a demon, was being exploited for money. He delivered her from that because God cares about the oppressed spiritually and otherwise. He delivered her, Paul through the power of the Spirit of God, delivered her from that, and their cash cow was gone. And the riot ensued, and the blame was placed on them. Hey, they messed with our girl, and now all of our money, our income is gone. So they were thrown in jail. But their jail was not the bad part. It was an appointment that God had set for them. You see, their obedience had led them to an appointment. There was a man who was ready. He was ready to see God. He was ready to hear the, the Lord. He was ready to experience the power and the might of the Almighty. Verse 25, I want to kind of tuck back in and we'll walk through it just real, real quickly. Their posture of obedience in circumstances, was what? Praying and singing hymns to God. And, and this was not a, a modern 21st century prison where they had 18-inch thick walls and nobody could hear you. Why were they praying and singing hymns to God? Because they knew the other prisoners could hear them. 
Not only did the other prisoners hear them, but the jailer heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened. I love that. Immediately. Have you ever experienced an earthquake and just all of a sudden things fell off, like your shirt fell off or your shoe fell off? No. This earthquake, handcuffs came off. That's really impressive. That must have been a really strong earthquake or maybe God got involved. There, that, that's one of the most fascinating things about this is that it wasn't just a natural event that God used in the timing. No, I mean, it was, and yet their, their bonds were unfastened. So God directly involved himself in their deliverance. The foundations of the prison were shaken, so the jailer's freaking out. All the doors are open. What happens to the jailer if all the prisoners go free? Not only does he die, his family dies. So when we look at the jailer, we think that he's uh, despondent for himself. He's actually feeling compassion for his family because he doesn't want any harm to come by him. Because if it looks like that the, the prisoners escaped and then they killed him, his family would be fine. So he wanted to save his family. He was already, in a, he was already freaking out. He was like, oh my goodness, this is, this is the worst possible scenario for me. When the jailer woke, he, oh, that's, that's not good. He was asleep on the job. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners escaped. I love that Paul did not whisper. He did not come up to the jailer and say, hey, 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 hey. Don't do that. It's okay. What, is this, what does the text say? Paul did. Cried with a loud voice. He yelled. He shouted, Hey! Stop it! Don't harm yourself. Stop that! I don't want to actually yell because I want to keep my voice. He cried with a loud voice. Don't harm yourself. We're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. We serve a great and mighty God who does great and mighty things. And the circumstances in which they found themselves began in ordinary obedience. So that at the moment of pressure, the moment of problem, at the moment of pain, at the moment where the cost was high, their obedience continued. They were obedient in the vision. They were obedient in the mission. They were obedient in the strategy and everything that God had called them to do. So when the moment here came, they continued to obey. Because God is worth it. He is worthy of our obedience. The final point of application that I have for us in the bulletin is this, is that the process, the process is this, it's repent, believe, obey, and see God's Holy Spirit heritage take root. 
This is the cycle of making disciples that God has called all of us to. We repent and believe. Verse 30, here with the Philippian jailer, when he asked, what must, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This was a question of repentance, a question of admitting that I do not have it together, that I need salvation. He did not say, what is, no, 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 what must I do to be saved? Because he heard their, their prayers. He heard their songs. He heard them glorifying and honoring God in their circumstances. He saw their obedience. It was their testimony. It was their words. It was their lives. It was everything about them. And the Holy Spirit worked and moved. The the cycle of making disciples is repent, believe, and obey. Our obedience is not necessary for our salvation, but it is necessary for our sanctification. It is necessary for our testimony. It is necessary for our participation in the goodness and greatness of a holy, loving God. So it was the jailer's repentance. It was the jailer's belief as a result of the missionary's obedience. And what did they then do after they met with him, they called him into obedience as well. So this morning, we do the same. We open God's word together, and when you read what God has done, and we call all of us, and we call you this morning, first and foremost to repentance and admittance of sin. And we've confessed together in prayer, but if you have never received Christ, if you have never repented of sin, we encourage you to do so today. And if you want to know what it means to be saved from your own self, from saved from your own sin and pride, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And if you've reached those uh, places in your life and you've committed your life to Christ, what then is there for you? It is the example of the obedience that we've seen step after step after step here in Acts chapter 16. And the final part of that is to see God's Holy Spirit heritage take root. Train up the children in the way they should go. Invest in young people. Invest in the people that come after. I am a product of a Christian home. And that that Christian home was created by a Christian home. But that Christian home was created by the obedience of a man who knelt down with my grandparents and said, would you like to know who Jesus is. It's that Holy Spirit heritage. And may the Lord take a root in our family's life so that our boys raise their children in Christian homes. And may that heritage continue and continue and continue as a result of our obedience. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks for the opportunity to open your word and we ask that it will pierce our hearts, that the truth of the gospel will not be lost on us today. Lord, we pray that our gathering will be a sweet offering to you as we take out time today on the Lord's day to honor you, to sing to you, to fellowship together, to honor you with our lives. Lord, may we walk out the doors today different than when we walked in. 
May the Holy Spirit take root in us and pour all the grace into us that we need to obey. Lord, I pray for anyone in here today that has not repented and believed. Lord, we ask that you will speak to them, that you will encourage them and draw them to yourself. Thank you for the heritage to which we can cling. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.